want to start tonight off with a story, as I often do. Once upon a time, because that's how good and all good stories start, once upon a time, a man named David Bell invented something called parkour. It's from the French word for route or path, and uh, a lot of the English-speaking world just calls it free running, since that pretty well explains what it's all about, just running completely unencumbered by, well, anything. It was developed from military obstacle course training, the art of getting from point A to point B quickly and fluidly, regardless of what impossible-seeming obstacles stood in your way. Parkour is done best when it's done in the city, where there are fire escapes to rappel up and down, where there are brick pillars to leap across, rails to dance over and swing under, and brick walls you can run straight up undeterred. I know this because I have lived this in my teenage years mostly, and uh, mostly while I was doing some college at the U of Illinois, which had this huge, beautiful, and extremely free runnable campus. Um, I, I learned something there that the classes never were quite able to teach me, um, mainly that gravity was just a very persistent suggestion. I learned that I could fly, in a manner of speaking, very short distances, falling with style, some might call it. Um, I moved like water around rocks, like if a, a boulder is put in a stream, it doesn't stop the stream, the water just finds another way. What I could not go over, I could go around by some means. Eric Little said in Chariots of Fire, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Somewhere in the gap between ramping off the wooden railing in the front of a frat house, leaping through the air and landing in a combat role on their front lawn, somewhere in there, I felt a touch of the divine. We are made in God's image, after all. And the way I see it, God is a free runner. Not in the literal sense, of course, no burning bushes turning cartwheels over the fire escapes, as hilariously ironic as that would be, but more in the sense that uh, God also moves like water. If an obstacle is put in his path, never mind that his sovereignty means that he knew it would be put there and already had a plan in advance for it, but if an obstacle is put there, then like water around a rock, he finds a new way. My favorite part of the Old Testament book of Esther is in the fourth chapter, Esther and Mordecai's conversation. Uh, there's a plan at that point to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And Esther, queen at the time, uh, is in a position, the only position it would seem, to stop this from happening. But Mordecai, a uh, mentor of sorts, sends her this message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God's will will be done. But whether or not we get to join in to be part of this beautiful, transformative, redemptive plan of his is shockingly up to us. Do you want to be a wall that he has to find a, you know, a way to free run around since he can't go over, since you're blocking the way? Or do you want to clear the path of obstacles and make this epic divine parkour run the greatest thing you've ever seen? Do you want it to pass through your backyard because it's there that you cleared a path and were ready for it? There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Tonight we're going to be looking a little bit at his story, his mission, um, and that of Jesus.
how these two paths overlapped. If you've got a Bible with you, please open it up to Luke chapter 3. If not, as always, we've got the text up on the screen there. Um, But before we get into this, I need to pray. So please join me in that if you would. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the fact that we are here, um, that you have drawn us to you for the first time or for the millionth time. But thank you for continuing to seek us. Help us to seek you. Um unerringly to put you first and to seek you with a hunger that surpasses any other hunger we have. We love you, God, and thanks. Amen. All right, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturian, Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Luke discovered prepositional phrases. Um, <laughs> so what's this about? Um, two weeks ago, when Jesse was introducing this new series on the Gospel of Luke, we looked at the first four uh, verses of chapter one, where Luke sort of set the scene. Um, He's doing the same here, being the good, dutiful historian, since the nature of his writing is to document a real non-fictional series of events revolving around a real non-fictional God-slash-man named Jesus. And real events happen in context, in a given year, for example. So Luke is just letting us know precisely when this was, and then in verse 2, where and to whom these things happened. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, For those of you keeping score at home, this is John the Baptist, since goodness knows there's more than one John running around in this Bible. He went into the country all around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. No small thing. And no small length of time in seeing this fulfilled. See, the book of Isaiah was written approximately 700 B.C. Uh, The events of Luke's gospel are written, well, at this point in it, about 25 A.D. or somewhere in there. Um, So we're looking at a distance from the time the prophecy was made to when it was fulfilled, that is about three times as long as the United States of America has been a country. Um, it's also been about 400 years during, the, uh, during Jesus' life, 400 years since the last time any prophet heard from God, which is kind of insane when you think about the nearly unlimited access we have to God through the Holy Spirit now. That is a lot of silence. But things are looking up. And all the people will see God's salvation. Sweet. So what's that going to look like? Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Whoa. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire! Man, if that's the good news, do not ask him about the bad news. (laughs) That's salvation? Well, think about this, really. We like this word salvation. We like the idea of being saved. But to use that word, doesn't that imply that there's something that we're being saved from? I mean, that word doesn't 
have any meaning whatsoever without awareness of the metaphorical tra freight train that we were just about to get slammed by. Um, you know me, I, I tend to be more of a grace guy generally. I like to focus on that. That's my personal preference. But, uh, you know, the word grace doesn't mean a whole lot either without an awareness of the consequences, does it? Anyhow, verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. <clears throat> the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. That, by the way, is the grossest, most humiliating job that a slave at the time could be stuck with. Um, according to some first century rabbinical texts that we have access to, um, there were people saying, you shouldn't even give this job to your lowest Jewish slave. Make sure that it's a Gentile, because Gentiles are dirty, any, dirty anyway, right? And, you know, John had an opportunity here when people are saying, hey, look at you, you're something special, to say, yeah, 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 I am something special. Yeah, I like this idea. Let's do this. But instead, he slams himself down the ranks in order to lift the true Messiah up. Moving on. He, the Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his, the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. The good news. You might burst into flame. Cheers. But again, this actually is good news that we recognize as good because we know what we're being saved from. Beyond that, John talks about us being bathed in the Holy Spirit, being gathered together to God from this scattered and messed up world that we live in. He preached both amazing grace and hard truth, which got some, uh, some recoil uh, from people who weren't especially interested in hearing that. Uh, we look at verse 19, where we flash forward a couple of years. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. In, uh, in my Bible, I don't know about yours, but I went ahead and just drew some parentheses around this part. It's more of an aside. See, uh, Luke is more interested in grouping material by theme or topic than he is in a strict chronological sequence of events. So what we have here is uh, sort of a teaser trailer for an unfortunate series of events that will happen to John in a couple of years. Uh, spoilers, the hero dies. But... That hasn't happened yet. So back to the presence of the past. <clears throat> Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, with whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. To the best of my knowledge, uh, and I actually checked this with Craig this morning, so now to the best of better knowledge than mine, um, this is the only time in all of Scripture that we get to see all three parts of the Trinity, obviously in one place at one time. Yahweh, God the Father, is speaking this confirmation of Jesus. The Holy Spirit shows up visibly, and Jesus the Son 
humbly accepts their confirmation of him. Which is a pretty wild thing, but honestly not the weirdest part of this passage, in my opinion. The weirdest part here is that Jesus is participating in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus somehow need to repent? Had he, the sinless one, somehow committed a sin? For me, that's the central mystery of this chapter, and I love things like this. Um, one of my favorite things to do when studying the Bible is start with something that is an apparent contradiction and dig. Because things like this, they're like a, like a, a mound of fresh dirt on otherwise blank ground. You, you can see something is out of place here, and if I dig, I'm going to find treasure. And there is treasure to be found here, so let's start digging. Firstly, what was John's baptism all about? Baptism in our world today, it's not the same thing as baptism back in the day. Nowadays, uh, it means what it meant for Grace Erickson, for uh, Daniel Bartels last week during uh, story time and baptisms. Um, it's an outward sign and a public statement bearing witness to an inward change that has already begun, perhaps already advanced quite a ways. Um, it's a way of committing to follow Jesus in the context of his body, the church. But back in the day, baptism could mean a few different things. You could be baptized into discipleship of a specific rabbi following him around because you felt that he had a good understanding of God. Um, it could actually be used for repeated temporary cleansings, uh, especially for Gentile converts because, as previously mentioned, Gentiles do. Um, Gentiles were thought of as dirty. They were sinners. Dogs, according to one derogatory term in use at the time. They, they weren't clean like us, the religious leaders of God's chosen people. And that's what made, uh, made John's baptizing unprecedented. See, he was telling other Jews, hey, you know what, spiritually, wash up. Ooh. <laughs> that would have been a bit uh, offensive, to say the least. I look at verse 7 onward. A man as full of the Holy Spirit as John was doesn't just fly off the handle at people with no provocation, because according to Galatians 5, that's not a fruit or product of the Holy Spirit. Um, with him, I honestly don't think that this was the first time that this sort of exchange had happened <laughs> between him and them. Uh, them being the Pharisees and the Sadducees, according to Matthew 3, which is another account of the same passage, or another account of the same scene, rather. These were the corrupt and power-hungry religious leaders who were constantly screwing with Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to get him to slip up in some way, asking him questions for which, the way they saw it, there was no right answer. Things like, hey, Jesus, uh, where would you get your authority? From God or men? Uh, oh, oh, Jesus, uh, what do you think about paying taxes to Caesar? We're going to get him on this one. Okay, all right. Uh, hey, hey, Jesus, can God make a rock he himself cannot move. And in my snarky imagination, Jesus responds to that one with something like, yeah, how about I get back to you on that one, say Easter morning? Um, because my head is full of snark. Look, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were not here to get right with God. They were here to pretend they already were. That's why one of John's counter-arguments was, look, look, don't even start with your whole father Abraham had many sons business because you don't get grandfathered into being right with God. So what gets you to that? 
Well, according to John, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is a lot of Christianese. So let's translate that um, in the Christian English dictionary or whatever you want to use. So bear fruit. Okay. So have actions that flow out of what's on the inside. Got it. Uh, but what is repentance other than a word that makes us twitchy because we've seen it used with all the kindness of an aluminum baseball bat. My generation, we, we don't especially like this term because it's often been used in our experience as shorthand for, hey, subhuman, cut the crap and start acting the way I want you to. And that hurts. It hurts the way it always hurts when somebody misuses a powerful word. And this word this, uh, this concept is powerful. In fact, this repentance business is the difference between life and death. What John says in this chapter about final judgment, yeah, true, 100%. I believe that. But that's not the part of repentance that I want to focus on today. Do you know why? Because the fact that I get heaven instead of hell when I die is not the reason that I follow Jesus. It's not. It is the biggest bonus in the history of bonuses. But for me, it's a bonus. I follow Jesus because I love him and because he loved me first. I follow him because he's the best thing that ever happened to me and my life. I follow him for the same reason that Simon Peter said he followed him in John 6 when he said, well, Lord, to whom else shall we go? No one else has the words of life. I want to look at matters of life and death that occur well, people are still alive. It's possible to be a dead man whose heart is still pumping and whose lungs are still sucking air. And, you know, I've spent more years than I care to admit like that, walking about pretending to be alive, and I do not want to go back to that. And I don't want that for you. Neither does Jesus, and neither did John, which is why Jesus came with this message of repentance. It's a matter of life and death, here and now. And back then, when the Pharisees and their entourage rolled up to John on the banks of the Jordan. In John's response there, I hear Tyler Durden at the Paper Street Soap Company saying, no, do not deal with this the way those dead people do. Deal with this the way a living person does. I mean, there have been pious fakes like the Pharisees walking around half alive or less for as long as there have been people. And sometimes those people are me. Sometimes those people are us. In John 10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Why would we ever settle for anything less? Last Wednesday, I was talking with a classmate of mine um, over at Metro about the ridiculous stigma that still surrounds counseling in this country. And what she said was, you know, I think really if we're honest with ourselves, Everybody could use this, to which I said, you know, I think the problem is that we all want to be healthy, but none of us want to admit that we're sick. And as soon as I said that, I realized I had just described the starting point for this thing we call repentance. The uh, Greek word used in this passage that we translate as repentance is metanoia, um, which means which means that I have lost my notes. Please hold. <laughs> and ponder to yourselves what you think metanoia means. Weird words that he keeps bringing up. <laughs> Too many notes. Station identification. 
So, metanoia. We now return to your regularly scheduled sermon. One resource that I looked at uh, defined it as, quote, implying a total alteration in the mind, a change in the judgment, disposition, and affection, another and a better bias of the soul. Well, if you're looking for Band-Aids, sorry, I got nothing for you. This is surgery, and it's the type of surgery that has to be done while you are very much conscious. And it starts when you want it to, but not a moment before. You know what, though? If I had, you know, if I had cancer, if I had an appendix seeping poison into every tissue in my body, I wouldn't want a Band-Aid, would you? And there is a cancer of the soul that you and I have. So did the ones who came to John the Baptist to get treatment for it. Let's look at what he he prescribed for him in verse 11 onward. Don't cheat people or extort money from them. Cultivate contentment, gratitude over having enough to get by. And if you have more than that and see somebody who doesn't, give your stuff away until you both have enough. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to look at this and go, oh, what a nice thing to say. I mean, it just sounds so general purpose, so generic, but this isn't nice. I mean, nice is nothing. This is a targeted radiation assault on the most caustic tumor ever to attach itself to the human spirit. It's a cancer with one of two names, and one of them is greed. I mean, why else would we hoard our cash and stuff that we don't need or abuse our power and influence in order to get what's not ours and unjustly profit off other people? We want what we want when we want it. But I don't think that's all of it. I mean, there are things that I want that I see that other people have, but, you know, I'm not out mugging people to get it. So what's the other ingredient here? And the second name of this illness is pride. Simple enough. It's the belief, usually unconscious, that I am the most important person in my life. In certain lives, yeah, this looks like outrageous narcissism, usually the kind that ends up on reality television. But for the rest of us, it's often nearly invisible. Like any successful poison, you wouldn't even know it was there. But it is there in the silence between thoughts, that tiny gap between the moment that we see an opportunity to act in love towards someone else and the split second later, that we don't do it. How many times has your pride and greed moved you to commit fraud or extortion of huge sums of money? Probably never. Maybe some of you, I don't know, but probably never. But how many times per week do we all see somebody on the street who's hungry and we have a full lunch bag or a wallet with some extra money in it and we decide, no, I want what I want right now. I want to make sure I know where my next meal is coming from, even though we really do. And I know that getting to where I'm going is way more important than stopping and being late, just for some person. How many times have we known that somebody's going through some really rough junk and could really use some company, but we don't visit, we don't call, because, you know, I'd rather do something else. I mean, it'd be awkward, and I don't want to put myself through that. I mean, for God's sake, how many times a day do we slap other people down with our thoughts and words, committing verbal murder just because somebody else did something that we found in some way to be inconvenienced to me? Yeah, some forms of this pride and this greed are worse than others, totally. But 
if we both had cancer, mine was stage four and yours is stage one, would you not still want treatment? John and his distant cousin Jesus are offering us a way to health here. This isn't like an antibiotic, which you swallow for a couple of doses and then forget about. This is surgery, remember? It's total, radical, which literally means from the roots up. This is total and permanent. And you're going to be working on this for the rest of your life, but I promise you, and I only use that word because I trust the words of my king, that if you keep committing to this, this process of repentance, of inviting God to give you, quote, another and a better bias of the soul, you won't just have a pulse. You'll be alive. Well, that's a fine bit of abstract framework, Adam, so... How do we land that on something concrete here? What does this look like day to day? How do we actually do this thing? To answer that, I'm going to try and answer a question that we left hanging earlier. Why did Jesus participate in a process that's about this? I mean, why could this, how could this possibly be in any way to his benefit? And it wasn't. It was for our benefit. In the Matthew 3 account of this scene, the Baptist resists, knowing how backward this whole thing is. He says to Jesus, "What? Well, I need to be baptized you, by you, and you're coming to me? And Jesus doesn't agree or disagree with that. He just says, let it be so now. It is right, it is proper to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness, another Christianity word, which means that tangible goodness that pushes back on the entropy of sin and prideful selfishness that is wrecking our world and ourselves. And the number one way to do that, contented, voluntary humility. As a favorite showbread song uh, put it, I've got to get myself to forget myself. I've got to get myself to forget myself. Think about this, the scene in Luke here. The one through whom all things were made, the mighty, the glorious, the king of all creation, standing in line. Standing in line with sinners like you and me, shoulder to shoulder with these visiting Pharisees, who he knows will later slander him and have him murdered. And he doesn't say anything to knock them down or build himself up. When is the last time you saw a king wait for anything? <laughs> I mean, the closest thing I've seen lately is Pope Francis taking the bus, which is awesome, by the way. But this doesn't happen a lot. Jesus has the right to go to the front of the line. He has that right, and he doesn't use it. He lays that down. I mean, heck, he, Jesus has the right not to be baptized at all. He's not getting anything out of it. He knows his life is short, and he's got a lot to do. It would make sense to just go on. Why doesn't he just step out of line and say, Hey, listen up. The rest of you, you stay in line because you filthy people need it. But me, I'm perfect. So give me the worship that is my due. Because that's not the character of God. Jesus is humble, and like a sheep before the shearers, he does not open his mouth. As Jesus himself put it in Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was and is an example for us to follow, not only of what to do, 
but more so of how and why to do it, which is, I would argue, usually the most important part. Things with Jesus are a little backward from the way the rest of the world does it. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, the end justifies the means. But when you're following Jesus around, most of the time, the means are actually more important than the end. And the means, the method of our lives, if we're going to follow Jesus well, has to be selfless humility that prizes others above ourselves. As he says in that passage in Matthew 20, our goal, our uh, win condition for my fellow strategy gamers is to lose. It's to give up on your prestige, your status of being in the right. It's to give up on winning the argument. It's to say that getting the class or work on time is not as important as stopping to feed the hungry person. It's to say that having the pleasant, quiet evening that you were looking forward to is not as important as making the call and taking care of your brother or sister who's going through some really rough junk that you could help with. The way that we can know if we're winning at life <laughs> is to know that serving God and other people's needs is priority number one, ahead of getting our own needs or wants met, if we even get to that. So that's it, Adam. You think that, that by just being a little humble, we can change the world? No. Of course I don't. The world has never been changed by people being a little anything. But I think what will change the world from our inside out is radical humility, roots to branches, all the way through us. And I think this because I've done a bit of programming, and I understand that changing literally one number or letter in the core of a program in a complicated series of loops, that's the difference between this chaotic, violent, stack overflow crash that wrecks everything or the program working perfectly and accomplishing much for its maker. I know this because I spent about half a decade working in retail pharmacy, learned about the process by which they make these drugs, where if you just change one tiny atom in the molecule back at the factory, and then replicate that out times a billion pills, that's the difference between millions of people dying horribly or millions of people, perhaps for the first time in their lives, starting to experience a kind of health. That quote from Isaiah that Luke inserts here is from Isaiah 40. It's the first chapter in what some Bible scholars call the book of consolation, more or less the second half of Isaiah. It's a pivot point between God speaking judgment on his people and beginning to tell them about mercy and the path to redemption. But before the part that Luke quotes, it reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A message of mercy and grace, the good news. And then straight into the part that Luke quotes, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. Something that I didn't know when I was starting to research this passage. In Isaiah's day, when a king made a journey 
to another country, he would send messengers ahead of him to the other lands, to their royal officials. And the message was this. The king of such and such a country is coming. Please make sure he can get here. <laughs> and so they would send out road construction crews of a sort. I mean, road is sort of a glorified term for what they had at the time. The Roman Empire was great, but back in Isaiah's day, eh, roads were iffy. They definitely weren't paved the way that we think of roads as paved, often meandering, crooked, full of potholes, and sometimes just abruptly stopping as they came to pretty much a wall of a mountain or hill. So, the Isaiah quote, it was literal. Filling in the valleys and potholes, leveling the bumps in the road, smoothing it out, removing obstacles in the king's route. This is John's message to Isaiah and to us. Prepare God's route through our lives, as if someone was coming, be it a Middle Eastern king or the greatest free runner you've ever seen. The way I see it, there's two parts to that. Getting rid of things and adding new things in. Erasing the crooked paths and the, the mountains and the walls. And filling in the valleys and the potholes. As for the getting rid of stuff part, John the Baptist said something that surprised me, or more so he didn't say something, and that's what surprised me. In verses 13 and 14, soldiers and tax collectors, which were two infamously corrupt jobs, came to him saying, what should we do to repent? And what shocked me was that John did not tell them, get a new job. What? I mean, that seems like the most straightforward way to fix this, right? At least on the surface. The fruit of repentance is not just what you do, far more so it is how and why you do it. I mean, look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit passage in Galatians 5 sometime. It lists love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are these things that with no context you can just do? You can just go out in the middle of, of the street and practice kindness without a circumstance around it? Or are these more ways of doing everything else in our lives? Ways of prioritizing God and other people above ourselves. I want to close with a story that God wrote into my life this week. There's this old pastoral cliche that before you preach it, God makes you live it. Um, which, honestly, that's actually not usually the way it goes for me. Usually, uh, I preach it, and then a couple days or weeks later, I catch myself only kind of doing the thing I said. Um, and God's like, hey, Adam, you, uh, you remember that thing that you said on a couple Sundays ago? And I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll live it. This time it's been different. <laughs> Three days ago, I'm working on my sermon on my laptop, this sermon, of course, and uh, it tells me it has to reboot to install some automatic updates. So, okay, whatever. I save my stuff, I reboot the computer, and when it comes back up, I see the black screen of death. Not even the blue screen of death, which apparently wouldn't be scary enough. Uh, and or, uh, I'm so goth even my computer wears black? Anyway, for whatever reason, I'm looking at the screen and I'm seeing this, this loop it's stuck in that I can't escape, and it, it won't even load the operating system at this point. And I'm staring into the void with a rising sense of terror because now, Everything that I've written on this sermon and all the notes that went into it are gone. Um, I don't know if you've ever written 
a sermon or a real big speech, but it takes a while. And that's this last Thursday. Um, I don't, I'm not, even if that information still exists on my hard drive somewhere, I'm not going to be able to get it back by Sunday. Plus, I've got a meeting with somebody that night, plus some other things, plus Saturday was supposed to be my day off for the week, which was going to be this Magic the Gathering pre-release tournament that I was super psyched about. And in any case, I know that even if I just cut out all the non-essential stuff, I'm still not going to be able to get this done by Sunday, and I am freaking out. I'm jumping through, t jumping through tech support forums. I'm calling everybody I know, tech-savvy friends, Geek Squad, anybody who could possibly give me some lead on how to make this work again. Um, I spend two hours at the library trying to download and install, uh, make a boot disk so my computer can maybe start up again. And I get to the 99% mark on this download that will save my computer 99%. Pew! We're sorry. Your session on the library computers has expired for the day. This is 99%. That is too perfect a coincidence to be anything but God for some reason saying no. And I'm like, what? What? What do you, what do you want in this situation? I know you're sovereign over it. I know you're doing something. What is it? What do you want me to do? And it occurs to me then that it's almost time for me to meet with a guy who's going through something really, really hard right now. And I could either show up and be there for him, or I could maybe have enough time to salvage this goal of mine. And God's like, hey, Adam, you, uh, you remember that thing that you wrote down that you were going to say on Sunday? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, do you trust me to bring about goodness if you do the thing that I told you to do? And since there's only one right answer to that, I put my laptop in my bag and I bike over to meet the guy at the Chipotle at uh, 6th and Broadway. I'm almost there. I'm one crosswalk away, just waiting for the light to turn green. And a woman who's homeless walks up to me and says, pardon me, sir, I'm not asking for money. I just, can I please use your phone? I've been physically assaulted and I need to call the police. Whoa, this, this is important. Somebody should do something about this, is the thought that stupidly goes through my head because I am, in fact, a selfish human being like the rest of us. So, <laughs> I'm, I can see, I can see the back of my friend's head across the intersection at the patio of the Chipotle, the back of his head, so he can't even look over and see there's a good reason that I'm standing him up. I hate standing people up. I hate what it communicates, that I apparently don't care about you enough to show up on time. I hate this. And, I mean, the, the worst part is, I'm looking down the sidewalk, and I see more people walking up, talking on their cell phones. Other people could do this. Somebody who's in less of a hurry. And in the space of a second, I remember what God told me, and I hand her my cell phone. And I stay there for a good five or ten minutes until I know that help is on the way and she's going to be all right. I then proceed to the Chipotle, where my friend is going through one of the hardest times in his life, and the thought occurs to me, oh my gosh, this guy has a background in computers. We can make this work. All I have to do, all I have to do is just at some point in the conversation, maybe when it's not quite so heavy anymore for him, just say, hey, buddy, by the way, I know your life's getting wrecked, but could you please debug my computer for me? I could have my sermon back. I could, I could have my day off. 
I could have the rest of this half a week not be insane and stressing me out. This could work. It'd be so easy. And I remember God's words about my win condition being to help other people win and putting myself last. And I know I can either get my needs met or refuse to dilute my focus and really communicate to this guy that I care about him and what he's going through instead of hijacking a conversation to get my wants or needs met. So I sit there and we talk for two excellent hours with my busted laptop literally within arm's reach of a person who could make all of my problems go away. And I say nothing because winning on my conditions doesn't mean a thing. I want, I want the sort of victory that God calls victory. So I head down, I head away from the meeting, bike home, or bike away, sit down at a desk, and I begin to write, which I am resigned to the fact now that I will be writing for the rest of that night and Friday and Saturday and maybe Sunday morning in every spare second. And, you know, it was weird. On the one hand, yes, I was still freaked out and severely annoyed at this situation and at the fact that I don't know if any of this is going to work out the way I wanted it to, but at the same time, there was a joy in it that I don't know if I expected. There was a joy that came from knowing, you know what, for as often as I screw up, no matter how many times I don't get it, this time, this time, I know that I did something that mattered. So I accepted. And right about then, I get a text from a guy named Jason over here who has apparently been researching my laptop for the rest of that day and uh, calls me up and tells me with a few simple keystrokes what to do. Bam! And by God's grace, the computer lives again! Right? That's what I said. <sighs> there are some things in life that we can only get when we give up trying to get them for ourselves. Even if God hadn't sent Jason to save my computer and rest day and sermon and all the rest of that, I still would have been happy because I knew that this time I had actually prepared the way. I had cleared out, palms down, the obstacles that stood in the way of seeing our freerunner king creating something beautiful. And that was better than getting my plans, my way, ever would have been. <sighs> Guys... You're my family here, and God is putting me through something, teaching me something that is making my life more full and good than it has ever been. I want more of that, and I want that for you guys. So join me in that. You know, Join me in this journey of putting our self-prioritizing to death so that we can truly and abundantly live. It is hard, but it is good, and it's harder if you try it alone. Don't do that. <laughs> Um, we're going to have myself and perhaps a couple other folks back in the prayer cave tonight, uh, which is that little thinger over there just after this. And please, if you're starting to see ways to prepare the way for the Lord in your own life and you want to talk or pray with somebody about it, please join us there. Take advantage of that and of any opportunities you have with friends of yours who aren't afraid to talk about the real stuff.
May the Christ and King guide you and teach you the ways to get yourself to forget yourself, to clear the way so that he can come and make this world beautiful again from the inside out. I love you guys. Thanks.